welcome. It's good to gather here together in God's presence. I'm thankful for a chance to worship with you. Um, as a reminder, we gather here in person, and there's also a brothers and sisters in Christ who are joining us online. Uh, we're worshiping together by God's Spirit um, as we come before Christ. It's a good chance to be reminded that we gather because the one who created us and the one who redeemed us has called us, and we're coming in response to his grace. Just a couple of reminders that uh, we have a shortened liturgy, uh, so we don't have a time of greeting like we normally do. Uh, so I encourage you after the service to make your way to the sidewalk outside and have a chance to get to know each other or to catch up. Also, we don't have our normal time of offering, and so if you'd like to give a gift to the, to the work of the church, there is a silver uh, offering tray in the back, or you can give online through the uh, church's website. Well, God has called us and called us out of our normal routine, our normal place to come as his people to come and worship. And so let's take a moment to prepare ourselves in quiet, to prepare ourselves to come before God. Good afternoon. Our call to worship is from Psalm 130. Let's stand together. I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who should stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. My soul waits for the the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. My soul waits for the As we come to God in prayer, I invite you to take a brief moment of pause to acknowledge with God how you come, your condition, your feelings before him. Let's pause. Gracious God, help us this morning, this, this evening to see that our lives are bankrupt apart from you. Lead us out of our self-centered, our self-sufficient ways of living. Allow us to embrace our neediness as both normal and necessary as your people. And God, we rejoice that you have not left us in our poverty, but you have made us rich in Christ. 
So cultivate in us true humility, repentance, dependency, so that your kingdom comes through us as it is in heaven. And by your spirit, make us aware of your presence. Meet those of us who feel strong and those of us who feel weak in our faith. Meet those of us in our places of fear, in our loneliness, our concerns about the future and our, our children's futures. Lord, meet those of us who come with questions and doubts, even anger. Meet us in all of these places with your kindness and grace. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Isaiah saw the majestic and holy Lord, high and lifted up, and being in, it, being in his presence, it exposed him. It revealed his woeful condition. Being before a holy and gracious God is always both revealing and inviting, and that's what we, and that's what we turn to in our time of confession to express, like Isaiah, the ways that we are other, the ways we are broken, the ways we are unclean. But here's the really, really good news. We come in confession because of the disruptive mercy of God that makes us new people. So we'll come to confess first together as God's people and then have a time of quiet personal confession. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Lord, we pray that the fruit of your Spirit may grow in us. God of all creation, your love is patient, and we pray for the patience to love others as you have loved us. Forgive us for the times this week when we were quick-tempered and angry. Forgive us for the times when we were discouraged and gave up patiently waiting for you. Take a moment of quiet confession. Father, we confess our sin, knowing that Jesus, who was rich in glory, became poor for our sake, so that in him alone we might become rich in mercy and in grace. And we give thanks in his name. Amen. Well, having confessed our sin, it's good for us to hear God's assurance. And these words come from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with singing.
The New Testament lesson is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, the, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The New Testament lesson, the gospel lesson, is from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, it's, it's good to be with you and to worship and have a chance to look at God's Word together. Uh, 
we have been studying in the book of Isaiah the last few weeks, and we're going to continue doing that this evening. But I want to start by looking at or talking about Psalm 11. I've been thinking about this psalm and our kind of certain current circumstances and uncertainties. You see, in this psalm, Psalm 11, in the midst of turmoil and difficulty, in the, in the midst of seeing cruelty and injustice in the world, the psalmist hears a voice. We don't know if the voice is from within him or something from outside, but the voice says to him, flee, flee, run, run like a bird to the mountains. Goes on, the bottom has dropped out. <laughs> the bottom has dropped out. The foundations, if they're destroyed, if things are not right, what can you do about it? What can you do? So flee. Well, the psalmist hears this voice and is certainly is thinking about that reality, that challenge, but he resists the message to flee, to run away. And rather, the psalm becomes a song of trust. God is my refuge, so why would I run away? As one translation puts it, God hasn't moved to the mountains. His holy address hasn't changed. He's in charge as always, and his eyes are taking everything in. You see, the psalmist's answer to the voice stirring within him or around him calling him to flee is to remember and to sing that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And I think if you're like me, we can maybe relate to this question and uncertainties surrounded by wickedness or discouragement. The psalm cites God's throne, his ongoing kingship, and he does so as the foundation of hope, as a source of courage and stability, as a guide for how he will live. I bring up that psalm not only because it can resonate with our moment, but because it resonates with how Isaiah talks about his work, that during the call of Isaiah to be a prophet of God, the people were facing great struggles and sorrow. As I've said in the last weeks, internally they're marked by discontent and discord and corruption. Externally there is a great superpower, Assyria, standing on their doorstep. They live in the fear of knowing that soon that power will fall upon them. And in the midst of that, God calls Isaiah to give them vision after vision of God's kingship that God is still on his throne, that God has not changed address. We see that throughout Isaiah, God's vision of his kingdom continuing, and we'll see the same thing in our passage today, that again, Isaiah holds up a vision in the promise of God's kingdom and of it coming fully upon the earth. And to see his throne, to see his kingship, in this case means two actions. Two actions that our passage points out. The action of judging sin and evil and the action of bringing rescue and renewal to God's creation and God's people. So in doing so, like Psalm 11, our passage offers God's kingship, his throne as a foundation for hope, as a source of courage and a guide for our ethics. So let's look at our passage. This is from Isaiah 24 and 25. 
just the last few verses of 24, or then the first 12 of chapter 25. You'll find it on your order of worship. You could follow along or, or just listen as I read. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the mountain will be confound, the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has cast over all peoples, the veil that has spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls will, he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we ask that your word would speak to us. Lord, we know, like the psalmist, this feeling that things are undone the foundation's unsettled, and Lord, we don't, we don't want to run. We want to hear you and find rest and courage in your word and by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the sermon, I mentioned that we'll see two actions of God's kingship. We'll look at his judgment of evil and of his renewal of his people. And after looking at those two, we'll then briefly ask the question, what does this mean for us? So let's start with this first one, this action of judgment, of sin, and evil. In the first three weeks of our study of Isaiah, we've been looking at passages from chapters 1 through 12, and today we're moving into a new section, if you want to know the lay of the land. In chapters 13 through 23, we hear judgments very specific against the nations around Israel, against Egypt, Assyria, Philistia. But then in chapters 24 and 27, that where we are t today, 
the judgment broadens. The language broadens to speak of God's judgment of the whole earth. The language becomes cosmic, almost mythic in scale. The Lord will punish the host of heaven, the kings of the earth. And we can ask, what does this mean? And what I hope that we can see is that part of the Lord's reign, part of its fullness, is His righteous judgment of evil. The passage I read contains just the last few verses of chapter 24, but the chapter opens with a stunning image saying, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth, make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And hear how Isaiah refers to those who are impacted by this. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest, with the slave, so with the master, with the maid, so with her mistress, with the buyer, so with the seller, with the lender, so with the borrower. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not just the lower class or those who are not resourced who will be held accountable, the people, the slave, the borrower, but the priest, the master, the lender, you too will be accountable before God. See, these opening words stress that a high rank, a status, or wealth, they will not save you. The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see, his eyelids unblinking, examining inside and out, not missing a thing. The message here is that God sees the proud, those who trust in their own strength or resources, who see themselves as their own God, and they will be brought low. On that day, the day of God's choosing in the future, the Lord, the King of heaven and earth, will punish, will judge the host of heaven and the kings of the earth. See this inclusive cosmic language, he will judge the invisible powers of the heavens and he will judge the kings, those visible rulers around us. And what we're invited to conclude is that power does not determine right or wrong. Power does not determine what is true. That power or position does not remove one from accountability to divine authority. This theme of high ones being brought low is continued at the end of our passage. You might have noticed this fascinating image that Moab, this nation that was known for its arrogance, is compared to straw that's pushed down into dung. That their fortresses that seem so certain that no one can scale them, those fortresses will fall to the dust. Well, you might imagine hearing this description, this vast language, that throughout history that the faithful oppressed faithful who are abused or mistreated, the faithful who weep over injustice, have held on to this truth of divine judgment that God does see from his throne. Well, as we consider this image, we can ask why. Why does God's word speak of judgment in this way, of heaven and earth? And we can conclude, right, that judgment of evil is part of the reign of a good God, of the king over creation. We live in a world that is broken and fallen, not the way it was meant to be by God. And so part of God's goodness is to address the evil that exists. 
Last week, if you were here, we looked at chapter 11, and we looked at the promised forever king, the one who will embody God and embody God's kingdom. And the way that that king is described, his clothing, the way he will appear and be known is by his righteousness and his justice. That he will judge not by a bribe, judge not by appearances, but with equity, especially for the poor. Now we tend, if you're like me, we tend to ignore evil when it doesn't hit us in the face. We see God's vision is different. God's reign contains the promise that evil will be acknowledged and that evil and sin will not have the final word in his creation. Even as we think of this, we can think again of the psalm, flee, run, flee like a bird to the mountain. The bottom's dropped out. What can you do? When things are a mess, why stick around? You see, part of the problem with fleeing we're thinking that we can run away from the struggles that are around us, is that when we flee in that manner, we have decided, whether we say it or not, we've decided that we can get away from evil and sin. That evil and sin is just found in a certain place or a certain group of people. And if we can get away from that place or that people, then we can be fine. I hope you can see in our passage, that's not the way God speaks of evil and sin. And part of Christianity is that we have solidarity, a commonality with one another and with all our neighbors. We have a solidarity in our guilt. According to the Apostle Paul, all humankind sinned and was condemned in the sin of our forefather Adam, and Adam all have died. This recognition of our own sin and our own participation in the brokenness of our homes or our communities our world, our own deserving of God's judgment is critical because we are always tempted to reduce evil down to a person or to a group. Maybe we can think about our circumstances. We can look around and think of what's happening with COVID-19 and how in troubling ways it's raising questions about the value of human life, right? Who's deemed unnecessary? Who's deemed expendable? For whom is protection or care too costly? This pandemic has also highlighted within our country the deep inequalities around medical access, resources, education. Along with COVID, we are witnesses to racial violence and the unjust deaths of black people at the hands of government officials, leading us to acknowledge the twisted partiality that lives within us and in our country. It's right for us to speak about these evil realities. It's right for us to speak that these things are not what God intends. Yet you see, when we address these concerns, when we speak about life or justice, we must do so confessing that we too are sinners, that we start from a solidarity of guilt, that with God's righteous judgment in mind, We refuse to speak proudly as if evil and sin has no part in us. But it's from our own understanding of our guilt and need with all humanity that we can join with the one who bears and redeems it. For in Adam all have died, but in Christ all shall be made alive. 
And it's from that perspective that we can speak with humility and conviction, calling out God to act in the face of these problems. God's reign invites us to think of his judgment of evil. And that moves us to the second part of our sermon in which his reign not only is one of judgment, but his reign includes the action of renewal for his creation and his people. And this promise is pictured in a great feast, in a mountain, right? It's it's timely. They're eating outside, (laughs) up on the mountain, enjoying this creation and celebration of a king. The idea here is that God is not just acting against evil, but he's acting for his people. Do you see, it says his elders will be present with his glory. The elders, those who represent all of God's people, they join together in his coronation. And they sing a song of thanksgiving and celebration as the king comes, saying, you are my God and I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. You are my God. And what we find out is that our God has invited us in his grace to this meal of abundance. A meal of abundance. You see the description, it's food that is rich, full of marrow. It's possible that we who are used to having food around us, it's possible that we who, you know, can most, in most cases get the food that we desire, that we can miss the significance of this image. If we've known food insecurity, we know the significance of hunger. And in this cultural setting in the ancient Near East, they were a drought away, uh, an invasion away from crops being destroyed and deep hunger being the reality that they faced. And so now they're being told, if you can imagine what it's going to be like when God reigns, can you imagine what it's going to be like? It's going to be like a meal, a table that as long as you can see, it won't just have food, but it will have the richest of foods, meat that you can enjoy. And you can enjoy it in excess and celebration. And the wonder here is that God doesn't just invite the high and the exalted, but his invitation is for all the nations that those who would be overlooked can come and have a seat at his table. An abundant feast. But not only is it a celebration of food, we see that the food points beyond the joy of eating to the hospitality and the ministry of the host. Here are guests that others have excluded, and not only are they invited to eat, but the host will swallow up their death wipe away their tears, and remove their shame. This is the promise of our God, who not only will face evil, but will do so on behalf of a people to free us from the fear of death, the covering of our shame, that we may know his joy. And so we can ask, as we conclude our time, what does this say to us? How might we fit into this vision of Isaiah? I recently saw a headline, a story, I think, in the New York Times, and the headline read, Now Boarding, Destination Nowhere. (laughs) Destination Nowhere. And the story goes on to tell us, looking to satisfy their itch to travel, thousands of people in Taiwan, Japan, and Australia have started booking flights that start and end in the same place. Some airlines call these scenic flights, scenic flights, but others are more direct and call them flights 
to nowhere. <laughs> Flights to nowhere. One passenger said, I didn't realize how much I missed traveling until the captain's voice came on with a welcome and a safety announcement. Well, this is a strange story, right? Strange. But one, if you're like me, maybe we can resonate with our current circumstances where we maybe feel the repetition. We feel unsatisfaction, even when we try to go about certain things. Or we feel restless or bored or like we're staying in the same place going nowhere. So it's especially in that setting that we need to hear and see this vision. As Psalm 11 asks, should we flee or what should we do? Well, the psalmist saw God's throne and it's there in the throne that we can find a place of being, a place of who we are and where we're going. It's through seeing and remembering the throne that we begin to have a sense of direction. See, we know God's reign now. His, he reigns in heaven. And his forever king, Christ, has come. The kingdom has been started here on earth. And we know the end, what our passage points to, the promise in which evil will be addressed and all things will be made new, the heaven and earth will be brought together, and there will be a feast of abundance for all those who are in God's family. So we know where we are now and we know where it's headed, but our call is to live in between those things. Our call is to remember that God is on his throne, but we wait and we trust for him to bring his judgment and bring his renewal in its fullness. And as we live in this time of between, we have to live as those of faith, waiting and trusting in our God who will come and save. And that means living as the people of the feast, people of the table, people who give witness to God's invitation that all are welcome, people who give witness to the generosity of our King, that sacrificially we share the gifts He's given us, that we would bless others as His table does. Give witness to the hope in the face of uncertainty and even death that God, not evil, has the final say in our life and in this world. And to give witness to shame being taken away, that you and I are no longer on our own to stand by ourselves, but called sons and daughters welcomed by God, now in Christ. So let us live knowing God is on his throne, and let us live trusting the future that he promises, and let us walk between these places, living as witnesses to our King, the one who is true and whose word will last forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you do not leave us to alone to flee or to fend just for ourselves. But, Lord, you give us visions of your truth, and so we pray with Isaiah that we would see your throne and that we'd walk in the reality of it. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The redeemed of the Lord shall return with singing. The redeemed of the Lord shall return, and all sorrow and sigh shall flee.
prepare to come to the Lord's table, this table that points to this meal that we await. You'll see in your order of worship a responsive piece. I invite you to join. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. privilege to celebrate communion together, something that we've been anxious to do. I want to remind us that this table that God gives us with Christ's broken body and shed blood, it points to the, to the feast that was in our passage. When we gather here, we have a chance to remember 
that Christ, the righteous one, did not flee to the mountain, but rather entered into the shadow of our sin and the cruelty of our death. He did so because God is on the throne and he obeyed his heavenly father to bear our sins and transgressions that he would bring healing to us. So we remember that gift, this bread and cup. But we gather now. We gather now as God's people to respond in faith, looking ahead to the promise that God will have the final say in our life and in his creation. Therefore, we come resting in his work, seeking to live in the foundation of his hope and his ways. This is God's gift to us. If you are a follower of Christ, then I invite you to come and eat and drink of this meal that God has set for his people. For all are welcome, because our place here is not by our goodness or our promises, but by the grace of Christ for us. If you're going to take communion, I invite you now to open up the package that was available to you. If you didn't pick one up, uh, raise your hand if you need one, and Pastor Eric can get one for you. If you're not participating in taking the elements today, I still remind you that this bread and cup are signs of God's love for you, signs of his kingdom, an opportunity for us to spiritually receive his blessing to us as we meditate on them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this table. We thank you for these elements. We pray that you set them apart and that your spirit would meet us and nourish us. Lord, as we come in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I invite you to take the wafer. Christ's body was broken for us. Let's eat in faith. And Christ's blood was shed to cover all of our sins. Let us drink in faith. Let's join together in a prayer. We can pray for us and offer a blessing for all of us. Lord, I thank you that you meet us at this table. Lord, I I pray for those who are not taking communion today or don't have the elements as they watch this service. I pray for your blessing, that your spirit would bring peace, and that your bread and this cup would point to the reality of your love and grace, and that through that truth you would nourish. And I pray, Lord, that of those of us who have enjoyed this meal, Lord, we pray that we'd go forth as your people, resting in you, but seeking to live in your ways, trusting your throne in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, that we can respond to the table you see on your order, a responsive peace. Let's join together. We remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming in glory.
Amen. Now receive God's blessing. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. May go in peace. Thank you.